Lord God Almighty, creator of everything that is and was and ever will be, you are majestic in your genius. You created a perfect creation, a perfect world, and you, you gave it everything it needed to thrive and to prosper. And then temptation to sin came into the world and sin and death became a part of creation. Separated from you and forever distorted. And so your creation became able to generate things like coronaviruses. Your creation was able to generate coronaviruses like COVID-19, which has created fear. And the father of lies has capitalized on that fear in order to create chaos. And so, Lord, we join with our neighbors across the land, across the world, in praying for your deliverance from the chaos. We pray that you would bring your order, your cosmos, to our situations and our times. We ask you, Lord, that not only will this virus be put in check, but more than that, that fear and destruction and evil and twisted thinking would be put in check. We pray that a common problem might unite people who have been so deeply divided for so long. We pray for the body of Christ, and especially as it is expressed here in this community of faith, and ask that we might be your witnesses, Lord. We pray that you might make us a demonstration to the world of what calm trust and faith in you produces. Help us to be people of words and deeds that bring comfort and order to the chaos. Help us to be proactive in caring for those for whom this is a particular threat. Help us, Lord, to maintain the amazing grace that fuels us and to embrace the Holy Spirit that unites us. And let us, Lord, be people conformed to your image so that in times of chaos, people would see Jesus, the reconciler and savior, the king of all creation. Let them see Jesus in us, Lord, we pray. And to that end, together we pray his words so that we might practice being his voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11 says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was, has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, 
Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And since more, and, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where, is, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and go from this place and sin no more. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, I always say that because it's such a precious thing to be able to read scripture. And we take it for granted. We got extra Bibles all over the place around here. I've heard of people who have homemade Bibles that they wrote over a series of decades as they listened to it read to them over pirate radio stations and they wrote it on anything they could find. You know, I mean, we are so blessed to have the Bible. I want you to think for a moment about a time when you really wanted to be accepted by others. Most of us will draw on our childhood, but the truth is, is you probably have more recent memories than that. So when were you in a position of really wanting to be accepted by others, where you really sought their approval? And I want you to think for a minute about why that seemed important to you. I want you to think for a minute about what you thought about that relationship would somehow enrich your life. What was so life-affirming and enriching about the relationship that it was worth you bending over backwards to get them to approve of you? Somerset Mom said, man's desire for the approval of his fellows is so strong, his dread of their censure so violent, that he himself has brought his enemy, that's the conscience, within its gates, within his gates, and it keeps watch over him, vigilant always in interest of its masters to crush any half-formed desire to break away from the herd. What this means is, is that we will strive so hard sometimes to be accepted by certain people that we will give up our soul, that we'll stop being true to who we really are. And if you really think it over, some of the people that we most admire are the ones who are trendsetters. They're independent. They're willing to do what we're afraid to do. They're willing to, to, to say or do things that the rest of us would say, oh, you know, that's not proper. Or I wouldn't do that. And if you ask yourself why you wouldn't do it, it's probably because you're afraid to be embarrassed or afraid to be criticized. We often give up our soul in order to avoid criticism or in order to maintain the acceptance of certain people in our lives. That's what Somerset Maugham meant to say. In today's passage, we're looking at a, at a process of rejection and acceptance. The people have accepted Jesus' authority for a moment because a few of them 
don't accept him and they're trying to trap him into proving who he really is in their minds. In other words, they are more concerned about the approval of their little clique, their little friend group of Pharisees, than they are about the approval of God and they wouldn't want to risk judgment and condemnation from their contemporaries in exchange for an opportunity to perhaps get to know God better. Which is ironic given the fact that they are supposed to be the leaders of the pursuit of God. This happens a lot with clergy types. We are more concerned about impressing each other than impressing God. And it is that way with church people too. We have a tendency to not say what we're thinking because we don't want to risk criticism. It's so funny because there are many times when I'm teaching a class or something and I'll ask people to comment and most of them will remain silent. And it is because for some, the thoughts haven't formed or whatever, but in many, many cases, people are silent simply because they're afraid of embarrassment. And here's something that I learned a long time ago that really sticks out in my memory so much that it influences me every day is I don't know how many have you, people you've experienced like this, but I've had friends who were willing to do the things that made them look the fool. You know, they, they, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll make themselves the butt of a joke in, in a good-natured kind of way, and, and they'll let people laugh at them. They'll take the pratfall. They'll, they'll, make, they'll, they'll make fun of themselves in a way that isn't cruel or hurtful. They're just, they're just not taking themselves too seriously. And everybody says, oh, I wish I could be as outgoing as he is. I wish I could be as outgoing as she is. And, and, and so we all envy them, but we're afraid to be them. And if you think about it, it feels really good to be the one that's envied. So why wouldn't you give up your fear so that you could be the one everybody admires because you're fearless? We live in these loops that we create in our minds where we're so afraid to do something that might embarrass us. And then we don't live completely. And if we did, we'd be like those people we admire because they're not afraid of embarrassment. I got news for you. You can't stand up here and look at all of your lovely faces every Sunday and say what's on your heart without some fear of judgment. And some of your faces are harder to read than others. And if I get too focused on what it looks like you're thinking, then I may not be true to myself. Well, I don't worry about it. Not anymore. Gave it up a long time ago. Doesn't matter what you think. What the Lord thinks is another story. And today the Lord says, all of you people who have condemned this woman have got a really important lesson to learn. Now, I want you to analyze this story with me for a second, because this story is pretty remarkable. They brought this woman before Jesus and said, she was caught in adultery, and the law of Moses says she should be stoned. You know, Jesus never even brought this up, but if you've read the Old Testament, you probably will recall that the law of Moses explicitly states that the man and the woman shall be stoned if they're caught in adultery. Where's the man? We don't know where he is. We haven't seen him. We, he doesn't appear in the story, though I bet he's there. Because after all, if she gets stoned, he's off the hook. So he might be there trying to egg it on. 
So this is pretty pathetic when you think about it. And what's worse is they bring her to Jesus and misquote the law. They make the law say what they want it to say. They say, teacher, now remember they're talking to the guy who wrote the thing. All right, it's the Lord God, you know. They're talking to the one who wrote it, and they're misquoting him. They say, teacher, the law of Moses says we're supposed to stone women such as this. Well, I hope you women are a little offended by the sexism. I mean, I am. There's a whole lot of sexism in human history. That's no big mystery to you ladies and men. We should be aware of that. But in this case, they've even distorted the law because they've just decided that she's a woman from the wrong side of the tracks and you know what we do with people like that. And then they've twisted the law in order to make it say that in their minds. And Jesus didn't even address that. And that's because Jesus is so incredible. Because he just goes right past the real problem, or right past the, the perceived problem and goes right to the real problem, which is the condition of their hearts. He's been telling the Pharisees all along, you know, you guys seem to be real experts on the law, although apparently they can't get it right. And what you don't understand is the heart of the law. The heart of the law is the thing, because in the heart of the law is a message that marriages are sacred relationships. And that the marriage is like the relationship between God and God's people. And you guys aren't even talking about that. You're not even condemning the husband who cheated on his wife. And not really condemning the woman for being an adulteress as much as you're condemning her for just being a colorful character who may or may not have loose morals. Think about that for a minute because there's where Jesus hits them right between the eyes. The problem is not what they're making it out to be. The problem is the condition of their hearts. And so he says to them, I'll, I'll make you a deal. If any of you is without sin, you go ahead and let fly with the rocks. Okay? You let fly with the rocks because if you're without sin, you should. Do you notice what the passage tells us? It says that the elders were the first ones to fade away. You know, if there's one advantage about growing older that most of us who have grown older can leverage, it is that we've learned a few things. Life experience makes you a little wiser if you pay attention. And I'll tell you something, people have accused me of being wise and I've always had to correct them by saying, well, it isn't so much that I was born wise, it's that I've lived long enough and I have enough scars to prove that I figured out what doesn't work. You know, that's really what causes most people to gain wisdom. They fail and recover over and over again throughout their life and then they have a pretty good body of knowledge of what doesn't work. So these elders around this situation are the first ones to realize they've been had. They thought they had Jesus right where they wanted him, but he turned it on them just like that. I didn't mention this at the first service, but 
you know, you ever wonder what he was writing in the sand? Because there have been books written about what he wrote in the sand. Here's my opinion. I don't care. If it was important, they would have told us in the story what he was writing. I think he was just doodling. I think he had such a perfect command and communication that he just knew what every comedian has to know if they're going to succeed. And that means that timing is everything. Christ's delivery was perfect. He just let them stew in their own juices for a few minutes while he made little circles in the sand. And then he just said, so anyone here who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he goes back to doodling. You have a question? Nope. I don't need to know what he wrote in the sand because everything the Bible tells me is enough. Yeah, maybe. Someday when you see him face to face, you could say, you know, this has been driving me crazy all my life, Jesus. What did you write in the sand? I don't think I'm going to ask him about that, but you can if you want. So here's the thing. Jesus sees them all walk away, and then he says, where are your accusers? She says, I don't see anybody. And there's one person left, and he has the authority to stone her. He's without sin. He's the Lord God in the flesh. And if anybody has the right to stone her, if anybody understands the nature of the law as it was intended, it's him. And what did he say? I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. He didn't say she wasn't a sinner. He just said, you're forgiven. Now live like you're forgiven. So this is what he does for us. This is a perfect example of the gospel good news. We are sinners and we therefore are unholy in the sight of God. We've committed adultery against God, meaning that he's asked us into a sacred relationship with God, the creator and the father of all, and we have at times cheated on him. We do. We do when we put the flesh ahead of the Lord. Whenever That's the very nature of sin. That's why it's so vitally important that every convert to Christianity understands that it doesn't happen until you can confess that you're a sinner and that you're hopeless in the sight of God. It doesn't mean that he looks at you that way. It just means that you can't get into a healthy relationship with God and live in God's presence until you deal with your sin. And once you are ready to recognize your sin, then you can stand before your Savior Christ and listen to him say, I don't condemn you. Go. Live as a member of the family of God. That's what he says. And that's what this story is illustrating for us. He is, as 1 John 2, 2 says, the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, I, I like words, and when I don't know what they mean, I look them up. That's fun for me. 
Yeah, I looked up propitiation and I was a little bit disappointed with the definition. Have you ever had this happen to you? You look up a word and then you get a definition like this. By which it becomes consistent with the character and the government to pardon and bless the sinner. In other words, the propitiation is the way in which God renders propitious. So then you got to go look up propitious. I have good news. The very character of God is to forgive and to give grace unconditional. In other words, it's the very nature of God to accept you. And yet, he cannot accept you completely until you are washed clean from your sin. And so Jesus becomes the propitiation because he delivers this essential quality of God in himself like an envelope to the people on the other side of the chasm that's caused by sin and death. So you're separated from God just like Adam and Eve when they were cast out of the garden. But Jesus is the delivery method of God's character of forgiveness and grace. That's what propitiation means. So now go and impress your friends by using the word propitiation in a sentence. And then telling them what it means. Because propitiation is the delivery method of God's amazing grace. And Jesus is that. And that's what he was for that woman that day. That's what he is for you every day. And that is how you become a member of God's household, accepted entirely. Not because of who you were, but who you become as a child of God, receiving the same birthright as Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ. I like old movies and, you know, if we're all going to be hunkered down and living inside to avoid this dread disease, then we better, we better find something to entertain ourselves because if we get bored, we're liable to let the devil get a hold of our minds. I love old movies and old radio shows and things. And the other day, I happened to catch a wonderful movie from 1964 starring Debbie Reynolds called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Let me tell you about this story. It's based on a real person. So Molly was a country girl who lived up in the mountains in a shack and was uh, uneducated, unsophisticated, backward, and she wanted more for her life. And so she decided that she was going to find her a rich man and marry him, and then she was going to have all the things she'd always ever wanted. And so Molly went down into the, Ted, the town of Leadville, Colorado, and she worked in a bar and found her a man, just such a man. He wasn't rich, but she was sure that if anybody could get rich, it was this guy. And so it's, uh, it's when she fell for Leadville Johnny Brown that her journey began because he promised her everything she ever wanted. And then he went to work in his gold mine until he had found enough money to do exactly what she said she needed. And they got married. He became a millionaire. She became the wife of a millionaire. She had all the things she ever wanted. They moved to Denver to the rich street 
where all the society elites lived, and she had a beautiful house with everything she ever wanted, money to burn, literally, as you watch the movie, and nobody wanted anything to do with her. All the rich people on their street would snub her because she was new money and an unsophisticated mountain girl. She tried to get their acceptance, but it would never come, and they just embarrassed and shamed her for being unsophisticated and inadequate. They had money, but they didn't have anything else that impressed people, and so they mocked her and made fun of her, and she was deeply hurt and lonely. And then one day, the minister of all people said, well, you know, they'd accept you if you were more sophisticated. You should spend some time in Europe where there's old money, and they're not so given over to pride and so forth. And so she goes to Europe and Johnny goes with her and eventually they um, make friends with a lot of royalty and wealthy people over there because they're a novelty. They're these curious bumpkins from up in the mountains and they're funny and witty and they're, they're refreshingly unrefined and the, and the elite of Europe find them to be precious. And while she's with them, she learns to speak better English and other languages too. She learns to play piano. She, she learns how to properly hold a teacup and all these things. And she, she learns all the things that she figures will make her equal to those people who considered themselves her betters. And then she goes back to Denver. They throw a big party, invite all the wealthy people in Denver, and they invite all their friends from Europe. And she really shows them up, except Johnny invited all his friends from Leadville, too. And it turned into pure chaos, as you can imagine. It turned into a hoedown. Well, Molly's devastated, and the society elite still don't like her. So Molly decides to go back to Europe, and Johnny decides to go back to Leadville. Molly is a citizen in a foreign land, still trying to gain acceptance from the world, and Johnny is in the homeland, looking out over the mountains, singing a beautiful song, calling his wife to come home. You see where I'm going with that? I didn't make that up. That just happened naturally. If you're a Christian, a lot of times when you're watching media and entertainment, you'll see things like that. I see it. Molly wanted the world's view of success so bad. She wanted the world to accept her, and the world wouldn't accept her. And she lost her husband, the one person who loved her absolutely unconditionally. His love was ridiculously extravagant. He just gave her whatever she wanted, and he always pleaded with her to just come home and let me love you. And she would always say, that's not enough. And even though he was crushed by this, she would still receive his love. And one day she realizes that she should have gone home to Johnny a long time ago because that was the only place she ever got what she really needed. And it was way more valuable to her than any of that other stuff. And so she gets on a ship and it just happens to be the Titanic. This is a true story. Okay, this part of the story is absolutely true. There really was uh, uh, Maggie, Mall Molly Brown, it kind of depends on which part you, which history you read. But she gets on the Titanic and that night when it sinks, she's in a, a, a lifeboat with some other people and they just, 
She was heroic. She, she's, and you know why she's so heroic? Because she wants to get home to Johnny, and she's not going to let the sinking of the ship or anything else stop her, and she's going she's to make sure everybody on that boat with her makes it home. She was even urging the people to go into the debris field and see if they could find survivors. And the real Molly Brown got shot down by the people in the boat. They wouldn't let her do it, but she was, she was that committed to saving lives. And so eventually she gets home to her husband and the whole country is lauding her as the unsinkable Molly Brown and that's how you get the name of the story. And I'm gonna spoil the ending for you if you haven't already figured it out. He's there and he accepts her with open arms because he loves her. And she's finally figured out that that was the only thing that mattered. You see, you're accepted. Your Father in Heaven loves you and He is waiting for you to come home. He wants you to come home. He wants you to stop looking for fulfillment from the world and just come home where you belong. And when you finally figure it out, like Molly, nothing else matters. You are accepted. But have you accepted the acceptance? That's what you have to ask yourself. Now, if you feel like you're accepted, I want you to just say with me, I'm accepted. Go ahead. I'm accepted. Now say it like you mean it. And remember that there's no, one other, no other acceptance that matters except the, accept, except the acceptance of God, right? It doesn't matter who else accepts you. And when you finally make peace with the fact that you can't win the approval of the people in your life, and that their approval is so conditional and you don't know when it's going to matter whether you're doing it right or wrong because maybe they're just having a bad day. You just don't. It's not worth the effort. Be true to yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor just because God loves you and accepted you. And that means God loves them and accepts them. That's it. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts so that we might be changed forever by your grace and your glory. Amen.